I'm John Ellis. It's Tuesday, May the 4th, from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis based on my newsletter, News Items. Rebecca is out today, so I'll simply touch on some of the day's news before my interview on the biggest story these days, the COVID crisis in India. There are three things that struck me today, all political. One, there is an election in Madrid today. A left-wing government is being challenged by a right-wing movement, if you will. Second story that's coming at us is what's called Super Thursday. It's the largest set of constituency elections in the United Kingdom since basically forever. Finally, Liz Cheney, the congresswoman from the great state of Wyoming and the daughter of the former vice president, Dick Cheney, seems to be going out of her way to criticize President Trump. My own view is that she's doing that because she thinks that President Trump is leading the Republican Party to disaster, and it will likely lead to her being tossed from the Republican congressional leadership. But the most important story in the world right now is what is happening in India. The COVID crisis is so serious in India that I don't know. It takes your breath away. And we were lucky enough to be able to talk to Joanna Slater, the Washington Post's India bureau chief, about what's happening there. Joanna, thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So I want to start by asking you, how do you go about your job doing what you do? How do you cover the biggest story in the world in a vast country? with well over a billion people, especially given that you're risking your life doing so. Well, I gotta—I have to admit, John, that I'm, I'm not doing my job the way I normally would. Obviously, as a journalist, normally I would be uh, really roaming pretty widely, talking to as many people as I can uh, in person. Uh, and unfortunately, right now, that is just a very high level of risk for anyone who is not fully vaccinated. So the answer is I'm, I'm doing a fair amount of my reporting on the phone at the moment. Uh, I also have a lot of help. Uh, we have a, a really great network of stringers uh, across the country, and I work very closely with them. And so that's, that's how we're keeping tabs on, as you say, a country that is both enormous and diverse and going through just a, just a very, very, very difficult time. How many people do you have, I mean, roughly speaking, stringers and other correspondents from the Post? Full-time, they're just two of us. The two of us are the, the Post Bureau here in India. But, but we do, as I say, we, we work with freelance journalists uh, across the country, and they're, they're a great resource at all times, and, and especially at a time like this. So, you know, when you start your day, does Washington come to you and say, this is what we want you to cover today? Or do you say, this is what I think is important, or this is what we think is important? So, you know, that's what we'll be filing later in the day. It's a combination. It, it, can, it depends. Some days it's, there's a request from the U.S. about what they want to see covered. Some days we drive the coverage some days it's more, it's a kind of a dynamic process. You have to wait and see what the news brings. Uh, I have to tell you that, you know, at the moment, my day begins with checking in on people who are sick with COVID to various degrees, you know, um, a friend, 
was in the ICU. Another friend's father was in the ICU for two weeks. A friend's cousin just died. You know, friends, colleagues, acquaintances, neighbors, all varying degrees of illness. It really does feel like at the moment, if you live here in Delhi, it's, it's simply a matter of sheer luck if you haven't had it yourself. Oh, my God. So the University of Washington here in the U.S. has been modeling the COVID outbreak in India. And their model projects that the actual number of cases, the actual number of daily cases might well be three to five million and that the deaths resulting from the outbreak are vastly undercounted. Can you take us through the data, the official stats and the modeling stats? Why the disparity? Sure. So I think some part of this you see in every country. So every country so far in the pandemic has not successfully captured all of the cases or all of the deaths. It's just a question of degree. By by what factor are those deaths and those cases undercounted? You know, in India's case, epidemiologists think that undercount is quite large and has been ever since the start of the pandemic, mostly because India has never reached the level of testing per capita that places like the U.S. did. So I've seen estimates that even from the beginning, you know, India's case counts were 20 times or 30 times lower than the actual number of infections. Uh, and also when it comes to deaths, that deaths were also undercounted by, I mean, again, these are kind of estimates only, you know, by a factor of five. And especially, I think, you know, the, the, thing, the thing about deaths is that you have to have a system that is pretty good at capturing all deaths to begin with. And in India, that system is, is, is not so great, particularly outside big cities. And then when you have effectively a, a kind of catastrophic event, like you're seeing right now, the system for recording deaths such as it is, has just completely broken down and, and you're really not capturing in the official statistics everyone you need to capture. You've reported in great detail on the oxygen crisis and the dearth of vaccine jabs. How did a country that is known as the world's pharmacy find itself without vaccine jabs, medicines, oxygen tanks? How, how did that come to be? And this is such a great question. And this is just something that I think you know, India is going to be grappling with for a very long time. So, so let me, I guess, take that question apart. Maybe let's talk about lack of preparation first. I guess that's the oxygen. That's the oxygen part of that question, right? Right. So it's clear that the government failed to prepare for this eventuality, not, not only failed to prepare for this eventuality, but failed to even contemplate it as a serious possibility. And I think this is a warning actually to countries around the world, which is unless you have vaccinated your population to a very high extent, this virus is coming for you one way or another. You may not have the cases now, but you will. <laughs> and that's what India has learned in an extraordinarily painful fashion. It is true that cases fell to a very low level in India in January and February, and no one is really sure why. Epidemiologists thought that it was because the majority of people in Indian cities had already been exposed. And indeed, that is what antibody surveys showed. And you had this government, like many governments, it was keen to pat itself on the back. It repeatedly chose self-congratulation, you know, over caution. So you had this degree of complacency and, and there just was not a preparation for a second wave that would have involved actually 
seriously engaging with the possibility that the country was going to have an even more cases than it had in the first wave. I never even heard people seriously entertaining that possibility. So I think that's where you are on oxygen. There was kind of a lack of preparation for a, a real surge. Uh, and on vaccines, that is the big question. You're absolutely right. India came into this with a lot of assets. It has a robust domestic vaccine manufacturing capacity. It has a track record in mass immunization programs like against polio. And it just seems that there was not the urgency or the capacity to scale up in the way that was needed to get ahead of a tsunami like this. That's that's what happened. And and now you have a certain amount of supply and a great amount of demand, and, and it's going to take months for those two to match. Yeah, the head of the Serum Institute, whose name I think is Ada Punawala, exactly. says that the vaccine shortage will extend into July. Mm. I read that in the FT this morning. I was like, wow, July. Yeah. Is there any practical way to speed that up, or is that just a fact? It's in July before balance is achieved? Well, I obviously do not have the same insight into the vaccine manufacturing process as Adar uh, <laughs> Punawala does. So so if, you know, if he's saying it's going to take that long, I, I think it probably will. I mean, the question is, you know, why did it take this long to build that capacity? You know, there's been talk about the fact that, you know, he's suggested that the Indian government didn't place large orders early on. There appears to have been some jockeying between, you know, the government and different vaccine makers, a lack of foresight, a lack of certain supplies, a lack of investment. I mean, all of these things are, are still, I think, a little hard to, to unpack uh, exactly what happened here. You know, I do think it's worth pointing out that India went about this a little bit differently, you know, to its great credit, India at the beginning was exporting or giving away some of the vaccines that it made, unlike other countries. Right. You know, its neighbors, particularly small countries, have benefited immensely. I know there's been a lot of coverage about Bhutan, mm -hmm. uh, India's neighbors, small Himalayan nation, you know, wedged between India and China, and about how it managed to vaccinate such a large proportion of its population. And it was only able to do that because India gave it vaccines right. and sold it vaccines, right? Right. Now, you can kind of applaud the, you know, generosity and the kind of diplomatic deftness involved in that. And then at the same time, I remember particularly a curious moment in March when I realized that India had exported about 60 million doses of vaccines, but only administered about 40 million inside the country. Wow. And that is something wrong. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you, you, there's something wrong there. You have infections rising and you have the second wave staring you in the face and you are still not moving fast enough to vaccinate your own people. And again, it speaks to a lack of preparation, a lack of urgency, a kind of complacency. And, you know, I think we can, if you want, we can, you know, we can talk about then what actually happened, you know, in March in terms of the kind of choices, you know, that were made then. That's exactly what I want to talk about. Okay. <laughs> can you tell us? <laughs> sure. So, so look, I, I think in January and February, as I mentioned, the cases here went down to a very low level. Mm -hmm. And as in other places, everyone is keen to get back to something like normalcy, everyone is 
tired of this pandemic. Everyone wants it to be over. Uh, so there was certainly this desire to believe that perhaps India had put the worst behind it. But it also became clear in February that something was starting to change. There were these outbreaks in the western state of Maharashtra that showed a scarily high level of transmissibility. We now know that they may be associated with this other variant. By March, cases were rising around the country. So this is the moment, that moment, knowing what we know, having lived through everything we've lived through over the last, you know, more than a year. That's the moment when the government, in my opinion, really had a choice. There was a massive Hindu religious festival, the Kumbh Mela, scheduled to draw millions of people at the end of March. It went ahead as planned. There were state elections in March and April with massive rallies. They went ahead as planned. So there was this kind of cognitive dissonance. I remember one day in particular in early April where I was listening to health officials giving a press conference, urging people to engage in COVID-appropriate behavior, avoid crowds, socially distance, wear masks. And you had the prime minister a few minutes later on the same television screen addressing crowded rallies, you know, not wearing a mask when he was speaking. And so honestly, seeing those images of the leader of the country doing that, you could be forgiven for thinking, well, how bad can it be? And, and I think now we know. Yeah, now we know for sure. I don't usually put uh, pictures in my newsletter, but I did put one picture in of the religious festival. And it was like sardines, the way people were packed in. And the crowd just went on forever. I was astonished when I saw it because I thought there's no way that doesn't lead to a massive outbreak. And of course, it did. So Modi's on overconfident and he's had unbelievable good dumb luck if you will in the first wave um it's clearly out of control now completely out of control why not a national lockdown i mean isn't that the only quote solution end quote another great question modi is as you will recall the same leader who imposed a nationwide lockdown back in March of 2020, when India had, as far as we knew, officially only about 500 cases right. in the entire country. Mm -hmm. With four hours notice, he locked down the entire country. And that was a real lockdown, a strict lockdown. I, I often have to remind people in the US who talk about, who use the term lockdown, I think a little bit freely. Uh, in India, it was a lockdown that meant no trains, no planes, no buses, no going anywhere. Right. <laughs> you know, the, it's not a stay-at-home order. It's a little bit different, and this was this was just a a kind of extraordinary measure that was imposed with almost no notice, caused a great deal of economic hardship uh, and suffering, and and I think there was obviously a, a backlash to all of the terrible things that happened as a result. I mean, we're talking about almost incomprehensible numbers: more than a hundred million people put out of work. Mm -hmm millions of people leaving cities on foot, trying to travel hundreds of miles home because they couldn't get home any other way. And they had no no way to eat or earn money in the cities anymore with everything shut down. Right. Just a, a huge dislocation and a traumatic moment for the country. So I think Modi is really wary of another nationwide lockdown. You have had smaller lockdowns already in India. So there's a lockdown in Delhi right now mm -hmm. where I am. There's a lockdown in the state of Maharashtra. 
other states and cities are starting to apply their own lockdown measures. But I do think it's worth asking, which is, you know, uh, in a speech last week, the prime minister said that lockdowns should only be used as a last resort. And one wonders if now is not the time for a last resort. When is that moment? It would seem like that moment is now, right? I think so. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with more of this interview with The Washington Post's Joanna Slater. Welcome back to the News Items Podcast. Moving on to Mr. Modi again, there were elections in West Bengal over the weekend, and Mr. Modi's party was apparently roundly defeated. I wanted to ask you, what was the importance of that vote and what does that tell you about Indian politics going forward? Sure. So West Bengal is a very important and, and populous state in India that Modi's party, the Bharatiya Janta Party, the BJP, has had its eye on for a long time. They've really worked very hard to try to make inroads there. It's a part of India where his party has not been traditionally strong. And so this state election was very important to him and uh, his second in command, Amit Shah. And they have spent months, months laying the groundwork for this. And this is part of the reason why they, one assumes, why they went ahead with these mass rallies, even as COVID cases climbed into the you know hundreds of thousands per day, uh, because they were really intent on trying to win this state, trying to wrest control of this state from uh, a local party called the Trinamool Congress, which is uh, run by a woman named Mamta Banerjee. And so Mamta Banerjee ended up winning this election quite handily. I mean, the BJP did better than it had ever done before, but she won this election quite handily. So I think it's probably not right to view this election as a referendum on Modi's handling of the pandemic. Uh, Sometimes elections in India work a little bit differently. They, They unfold in stages. Mm-hmm. So in this case, in West Bengal, it, unf- it unfolded over eight stages over about five weeks. So it took about five weeks to conduct the election from start to finish. So, you know, it wasn't until really the last few weeks that the pandemic was the issue in the country. But I think it's certainly an illustration that Modi, who is sometimes seen as kind of invincible lately in Indian politics, is maybe not invincible And in this case, they really put a lot of resources into this, a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of effort, and uh, they were not able to win. India is obviously a very important country in terms of geopolitics. How have the other countries that have an interest one way or t'other in India responded to the crisis? Has China been helpful? I saw a news story saying that there was social media in China sort of mocking India for its troubles. But has China, the United States, the European Union, who has stepped up to help? Let's put it that way. I think you've seen a number of countries in Europe, in Asia, and now the United States really uh, step up to help. There seems to be, you know, everyday new shipments of one type of equipment or assistance or one type or another uh, arriving in India from various places. So I think now there is a, a global recognition of the seriousness of the situation here and, and countries are, are certainly moving to help, particularly countries like the United States who view India as a crucial geopolitical partner in this region. 
Has this in any way spread to Pakistan or not? I'm thinking of a case where Pakistan would be angry. At, they usually are anyway, but angry at India for, you know, contaminating their people, so to speak. Is there anything like that going on or not? Cases are certainly rising in Pakistan, but I don't think that there's a, a lot of direct, you know, contact these days between the populations, unlike, for example, between India and Nepal. So Nepal is is having a very difficult time now as well, because the border with India until recently is under normal circumstances is more or less more or less open. But you are seeing cases rising in other South Asian countries, uh, in India's general neighborhood. And again, that may not be because infections are directly spreading from India, but because they're all experiencing a kind of similar dynamic in the pandemic, which is, you know, wave one, and then it kind of recedes. And, and now they're all kind of going into a second wave for reasons that we don't understand very precisely at the moment. But at least in India's case, the reason why we think this second wave is happening now is because you've had people change their behaviors. People effectively go back to all but normal life at the same time as you've had the introduction of these variants that are either more transmissible or possibly capable of evading the immune system. Do scientists in India anticipate yet another variant? I'm curious as to what the predictions are from the scientific community. Are they concerned about a triple mutant, so to speak? Yeah. Well, I, I think they. everyone is concerned with the levels of infections that we're seeing in India right now, just the, the type of numbers, the kind of staggering caseloads every day that the more the virus spreads, the more opportunity it has to mutate. So, so certainly that is definitely a concern that you could see more variants emerge from this surge here in India. It's like every month, right? There's a new variant. That's sort of the model. Seems like it. Well, before we let you go, I just wanted to ask you, what is it like to cover what is arguably the biggest public health crisis of the century and be in the country where it's taking such an enormous toll? How, what does that feel like? What is it like to go to work? It's, it's very difficult. It's very sad. It's just crushingly sad to see what is happening to you know India which is a place that I care about deeply a place where you know, I've spent now more than 8 years of of my life you know I on Saturday I was writing for the second time in a week about a hospital running out of oxygen in Delhi and people dying as a result just that happening once would have been unthinkable and unimaginable even six months ago or a year ago. And, and now I've written about it twice in the span of a week, and that's just in Delhi. And there could be, you know, there's, it certainly has happened in, in other places in India. It's, it's just unbearable to see the types of struggle that people are going through right now because there are more people severely ill with COVID than hospitals can handle. 
many more. Hmm. The University of Washington models shows that the cases will begin to go down sometime in like the third week of May, maybe the fourth week of May. Is that the sense there that it'll be another two, three horrible weeks, but then, if you will, the fever will break, or is that naive? I think I've seen a, a couple of different predictions about you know when the peak will come, whether it's in the middle of May or, or, or the end of May. But, but the problem is that the burden that we're seeing on hospitals now is the product of infections, you know, two weeks ago. Right, right. So until the cases come down considerably, the pressure on hospitals really doesn't ease. So we're still weeks or perhaps even, you know, months away from a much better situation unless, you know, capacities can be rapidly scaled up, whether that's in terms of hospital beds uh, or oxygen supply. Uh, and I think that's certainly the goal. That's certainly what the government is working very hard to do. But even if technically, you know, the overall case numbers start to come down in the middle of May, you're still at, what is it, coming down from 500,000 to 400,000 or 400,000 to 300,000. I think you're going to see stress on the health system well after that. Yeah, I mean, if the, if the Washington, you Washington model is correct, it's, it would be, you know, from three to five million down to two to four million. And then, I mean, the numbers are just staggering. One final, and I promise this is the final question. When you started your career in journalism, did you ever imagine that you would cover the apocalypse, essentially? No, no. And I think this is this is one of the this is one has been one of the tough parts about the last month, which is this is so unlike anything I've ever experienced or really even imagined. Of course, you know, it's true early on in the pandemic, no one knew what was going to happen here in India. And there certainly was this fear of a kind of systemic collapse, this fear that the health system could buckle. And there were some difficult, difficult times early on. Hospitals were full. People did have trouble getting care at other points in the pandemic. Right. But no one really thought that that was a prelude to something even worse, which is now, you know, people dying at home because they can't get a hospital bed or people dying outside hospitals because they can't find, there's no room, you know, inside or people dying inside hospitals in rare cases, because there isn't enough oxygen. So I think as journalists, we tend to think of difficult situations in terms of danger or, or conflict, but, but, but not like this. And this is, this is, this is both, you know, crushingly sad and very frightening and, and just terrible, terrible to witness. Well, listen, thank you so much for doing this. I know you're one of, the, one of the busiest women in the world covering the biggest story in the world. So we really appreciate your taking the time to talk with us. Thank you so much for having me. John Ellis here again. Thank you so much for listening. News Items is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our recording engineer is the great Billy Gardella, and we'd like to thank the whole team at Factory Underground. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with our regular programming. 
as Rebecca and I discuss the latest in geopolitics, finance, science, and technology. See you then.